I'm going to describe for you uh, three vignettes. I want to see if you can find the common thread among all three. Here's the first one. Uh, You're the parent of a child somewhere between, let's say, 4 and 18. And you're looking for certain behavior to be exhibited at, at any moment. For example, sharing a Barbie or making a bed, finishing homework, getting off the phone, getting a job. And let's suppose this expectation of said behavior goes unheeded. And then comes a more stringent encouragement. And after a few more unsuccessful attempts to get your beloved child in gear, you do what any parent would think of next. You raise your voice and you do a lot of pointing. And then you hear out of the blue this familiar childhood response, I hate you. Words nearly every child utters at some time in their life. Mary and I were John Rosemond fans during our parenting years, and his thought, if your kids don't like you, your parenting's right on track. You're doing something right. But those words still hurt if it's the first time or the 70th time someone you love and would give your life for just told you that they hate you, and that's hard to hear. Number two, suppose you opened up your home to a, to a wayward relative Uh, Their life's a bit of a mess. They have no direction, no real purpose. They're living with an alcohol addiction that they've not really dealt with very well. And you make a decision to give this relative a hand up. You let them stay at your home for free. And you invite them to join in on your family meals. Uh, You help them get a job where you work. Things are going well. In fact, you're feeling pretty good about your rehabilitative efforts. And then one day you notice some money that you had tucked away in a secret place is missing. And about the same time, you notice your mission project comes home wasted a few nights in a row. And you can't help but wonder if there's a connection. Number three, surely this scene would never happen, but just imagine an all-American high school football player, and you're trying to pick a college. And this one particular school kind of stands out to you. They have a great football reputation. The coach has a track record of producing NFL prospects. And as he recruits you, he looks you in the eye, and he answers your question. He says, I am not leaving this school. If you come here, I will be your coach. And in those words, a relationship forms and trust is built. But then a few days after you commit to attending the school, he takes a job with another team. Listen to these words from King David in Psalm 55. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you. A man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. So the common thread isn't real hard to identify, is it? It's, it's about betrayal, and it's been going on a long time, since the beginning. Parents feel betrayed when these words of hate come out, even if their child doesn't understand what they're saying. We feel betrayed by friends and relatives when we try to help out, but we get burned. Betrayal hurts deeply when a spiritual mentor or a a resource in our life takes a fall. Betrayers are people you don't name your children after. You don't hear too many kids named Brutus or Cassius or Judas. Listen to David's words again. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. That really hurts. When a friend is the one who walks away or when a brother is behind the betrayal. I'd like us to turn the spotlight on the premier betrayal event in history. It happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Jesus has spent some time teaching with his crew at the Mount of Olives. He talked to them about the end of time. Uh, he talked to them about being prepared. Jesus said to them, keep your lanterns lit. Uh, put your talents and gifts to work today for the benefit of the kingdom. Look for people on the margins, in the shadows, serve them, listen to them, love them. All of that's in Matthew 25. Then you turn the page to Matthew 26, and we begin with a minor chord. It's a haunting chord because Jesus predicts his crucifixion. In verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So the chief priests are trying to find a way to get Jesus off the streets and to shut him up. And while the priests are plotting in the temple, Jesus is at Simon's house. And while he's there, a woman shows up and anoints his feet with oil. John tells us this woman is Mary, someone whose life has been dramatically changed by Jesus. And the oil she pours on Jesus' feet is worth about $12,000. Next, we read these words in Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And they counted out 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I want you to notice uh, something a little subtle in here of who initiated this meeting. We read this word again, these words again. Judas Iscariot is the one who went to the chief priest. This was all on Judas. He thought it through. He made the choice. He took the first step. He accepted the money. He left with an assignment. Tell us where to find him. Mary pours away $12,000 out of love for Jesus. It only takes $5,000 for Judas to betray him. While at Simon's house, Jesus has his followers get things ready for the Passover. And during that time, he has an intense moment with Judas. And he lets Judas know he knows everything. Judas is, is too far gone. He's, he's in too deep to hear uh, what Jesus is saying to him. From Simon's house, the group walks to Gethsemane. The details of what happens next are agonizing to take in. The burden of the world is on Jesus' shoulders. He's been sent here from day one to reach this tragic spot. It's tearing at his heart. It's wrenching his soul. And while this is going on with Jesus, the disciples sleep. In verse 46, Jesus says these words, Get up, let's go, here comes my betrayer. These words are spoken about Judas, but they could be spoken about anyone involved in this event. John, James, Peter, Andrew, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas. These words could have been spoken about every person who praised Jesus last Sunday on his way into town, but abandoned him tonight. Every single person turned against Jesus. Every single person. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. So again, Judas is the one on whom Matthew shines the spotlight. And you have to wonder, why, why did Judas do this? 
Remember, the, the priest didn't come looking for Judas. Judas went looking for the priest. He initiated that meeting. And he asked them if they wanted his help. He's the one who's looking for the opportunity to arrest Jesus. And why did he choose a kiss as the signal? Except for Jesus, not one person did a good thing on this night in Gethsemane. No one was courageous. No one acted with character. No one acted with integrity. No one acted with honesty. The scene was filled with lies and betrayal. The disciples who followed him last week fled on this night. The people Jesus served and healed and loved, they came to arrest him. And this wasn't simply a dozen or so rowdies groping around by torchlight in a dark garden. By the words Matthew chooses, he let us know this is a significant group of soldiers, perhaps around 200, maybe more, all of whom are armed with swords and clubs. Judas is the one in the spotlight, but everyone else did nothing. Think about who was in that crowd. There were common folks like you and me, people with bills to pay and mouths to feed. On their own, not one person in this crowd would have come to Jesus, come at Jesus like this. After all, he's perhaps uh, the one that gave them the eyes to see to get there and the ears to hear what's going on and the feet that carried them there. He's the one who perhaps had allowed some of them to live and breathe. Getting caught up in this mob mentality, the mob acted in ways not a single one of them would have ever acted on their own. This is a full-fledged mob with a single intent to capture the Messiah. The one who came to heal, to liberate, to model the love of God, those he came to save are set on taking him out. Matthew writes these words after Jesus was arrested. I want you to read this with me. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. How did Matthew feel as he wrote those words down? Because he left too, didn't he? He ran away. He found a hiding place. He cowered in a corner. That line must have been so heart-wrenching for him to put down. Here's one author's thoughts. Though the kiss was planted by Judas, the betrayal was committed by all. Every person took a step, but no one took a stand. As Jesus left the garden, he walked alone. The world had turned against him. He was betrayed. You know something that's unique about betrayal is, <clears throat> is only a friend can betray. Betrayal is so much more than rejection or insult or apathy. Betrayal breaks your heart. Take in the words Matthew writes. All the disciples deserted him and fled. Every one of them ran away. No one risked being identified. Thomas ran. John ran. James and Matthew, they, they all ran. Not too much time earlier in Matthew 26, 35 at the Passover meal together, they all pledged their loyalty. Peter declared to Jesus, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Every one of them said out loud to Jesus, we're all in no matter what. And then with the turn of a page, we see every single one of them scurry into the shadows. 
I don't know if you've ever been betrayed. My guess is that you've experienced betrayal at some level in your lifetime. The devastating part of betrayal is it comes from people who are supposed to be on your side. At the core, we're talking about a a violation of trust. Betrayal is something a friend, a person you date, a leader you have confidence in can do because they're on your side. They're on your team. This is a person you might embrace or give a kiss to. For some, that betrayer is a parent. A parent's supposed to be on your side. It's like they've signed an unwritten document that says, I bring this child into the world and I will always be there. When she starts to jump, I'll catch her. When he wobbles, I'm right there. I'll coach, I'll assist, I'll tutor, I'll nurture, I'll love, I'll discipline. I will always be there. Babies don't ask to be born. It's our choice. So if a parent's not there, if this child is dropped in one way or another by constant ridicule or neglect, by verbal, emotional, sexual abuse, severe damage happens to that child. And it makes it hard for them to ever trust again, even as an adult. This happens in marriage, where we actually have a document that we sign. We say, I'll be there with you. I'll cherish you. I'll be on your side. I'll give up all else because of my commitment to you until the day I die. And if a wife or husband walks out, that's betrayal because the two of you had a covenant. My guess is some of you know much more about betrayal than you wish you did. You've had a Judas in your life. It was someone who got close enough to you to do great damage, and it hurts. So what do you do? If you could be Judas, what would you do? If you could be Jesus, what would you do with Judas? If he came up to you and gave you a kiss and you knew that this kiss was worth 30 pieces of silver, what would you want to do? Well, you probably want to get even. Something each of us has been tempted to do. Our natural human response to betrayal is to even the score. We hear about revenge stories all the time, particularly in some divorce situations. I read about a deal that happened in Atlanta. This is several years ago. There was a Porsche advertised in the paper for $50, an unbelievable deal. A man showed up at a woman's house who was selling it, and the guy said, tell me the problem. What's wrong? Porsches don't sell for 50 bucks. And here's her story. Her husband left her for a younger woman. He said, you can have the house, you can have the kids, you can have the inheritance. Just sell the Porsche and send me the money. So she got 50 bucks, and she sent it to him. When we've been betrayed, there's that desire in us to settle the score. You can't treat me like this and get away with it. So then we plot our own little betrayal in return. We have our own ways of getting even, but do we really gain anything by it? For Jesus to turn and betray Judas, what would that have accomplished If you choose to hurt someone as they walk out of your trusted circle, how does that help things? How does that help you? Another option for us to take is is this. Some people respond to a Judas by taking the blame themselves. After all, Jesus picked these 12 guys. He prayed before choosing them. He spent time with them to some degree. Wasn't Jesus responsible? Sometimes people who are betrayed feel like it must somehow be their fault. If this person is treating me this way, I must have done something wrong. I mean, how many thousands of kids have thought their parents' divorce was their fault? You just can't face the fact that such an important person in your life would simply walk away or hit you 
or violate you. Sometimes that's exactly what betrayers want them to think. This is all your fault. It may be easier to say, I failed, than to admit someone close failed me. So you start rationalizing what happened, and you make excuses for them instead of facing the pain of betrayal. It hurts too deeply to think mom or dad or my friend or this minister would do this to me. Another response to betrayal is just to live in isolation. You know, people who've been burned so deeply, they say, uh, it's not going to happen to me again. No more. I'm, I'm through with all that. From now on, I'll just stay in my corner. I'll spend time interacting with others on a screen. I'll interface safely with people right here from my computer and stay on the surface. Nothing too deep because the inner relationship is to risk someone violating that trust again. When we're betrayed, those are a few options we might choose, but look at what Jesus chose to do. He says to Judas, friend, do what you came for. And Judas does. So Jesus is eventually led to a cross, and I want you to listen to his words. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Rather than retaliate, Jesus forgives. I remember hearing the story of a woman. um, This is a long time ago. It, It really made an impression on me. She had been assaulted by a group of men, and she talked about her experience. And her experience was horrible and violent on the night of her attack. But she seemed to me to be a person of incredible joy and, com- and contentment. And she didn't seem to carry any bitterness or resentment or anger. So people naturally ask her, how can you be like this after what happened? And her response was this, those men had their way with me for one night of my life. It was the worst night of my life. But I'm not going to give them the power to run any more of my nights or days. I forgave them as soon as possible so I could move on. In forgiveness lies incredible empowerment. Forgiveness says you're not a doormat. You're not here for someone to stomp and violate all the time. You're valuable to God, and and you're in control. You're not at the mercy of the one who dropped you. I'm not at the mercy of someone who walks out on me, someone who betrays me. God gives me the power to make some decisions. I I can walk around in isolation, or I can risk relationships again. I can spend the rest of my life retaliating, or I can try out this whole new world of forgiveness. I can use my days trying to track this person down to even the score, or I can borrow Jesus' words. Father, forgive him. Forgive her. They don't know what they were doing. You can choose not to draw inside of a shell that feels safe. Perhaps the best way out is the miracle of forgiveness. To to let go of all the desires to even the score. I don't want to oversimplify or trivialize any kind of betrayal someone in here has experienced by flippantly saying, just forgive this person who did terrible things to you and, and move on and everything will be cool. We all know it's, it's not that easy. But we also know forgiveness is where Jesus is leading us. It's where he went when he was betrayed by every single person who was close to him. And it's where he leads us to when we're betrayed. Listen to these words written about forgiveness. As long as you hate your enemy, a jail door is closed and a prisoner is taken. But when you try to understand and release your foe from your hatred, then that person is released and that prisoner is you. 
what other path is there? I mean, will staying angry all your life uh, fix the problem? Will, will getting even take away the hurt? Forgiveness doesn't minimize the betrayal, nor does it justify the betrayer. Forgiveness allows you to progress in your life. Let's be honest. I mean, it's easy to say to someone who's been betrayed, it's easy to say, you need to forgive this person who's betrayed you and, and move on. And I, I hope you don't leave here today thinking the message to the betrayed is a, is a trite directive to forgive. The business of forgiveness is hard. We know forgiving is sometimes next to impossible to pull off. And I, I greatly respect the challenge forgiving someone puts in front of us. A book that Mary and I use when we talk to couples about to get married is written by Gary Chapman, and it's entitled, Things I Wish I'd Known Before I Got Married. Uh, chapter 6 is one of the best chapters in this book, and the heading is this, I wish I had known forgiveness isn't a feeling. And Chapman describes what forgiveness isn't in this chapter. Perhaps forgiving someone who's hurt you deeply might be a little more possible if you can hear what forgiveness is not. He identifies four things forgiveness does not do. The first one is this. Forgiveness does not destroy your memory. Someone may say to you, if you've not forgotten, you've not forgiven. That's simply not true. Not true. We cannot not remember. That's not how God made our brains. God does seem to have the capability to forget our sins, which is an incredible truth about him. In Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31, we read these words, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God tells us he can choose not to remember. Though God can do that, it may be unrealistic to expect ourselves to completely forget about a deep cut someone has inflicted on us. But that doesn't mean we can't forgive them. Forgiveness doesn't remove all the consequences of wrongdoing. Some family member may steal some money from you and you can forgive that person, but you're still out 5,000 bucks. Sin, betrayal, they leave scars, consequences, we will all need to learn how to live, live with. Forgiveness doesn't rebuild trust. Acting trustworthy, being trustworthy, that's what rebuilds trust. You can forgive someone and still not trust them. Those are two different issues. Trust is destroyed in a relationship when one person is unfaithful, when a person doesn't keep their promise. After forgiveness occurs and over time, maybe a long period of time, trust can be rebuilt. But only when trustworthy actions have, exhibited, have been exhibited over the long haul. Forgiveness does not always result in reconciliation. Similarly to rebuilding trust, reconciliation and forgiveness are two separate issues. When betrayal happens and when forgiveness is extended, that relationship is not likely to go back to the way it was anytime soon. It's true that deep wounds take time to heal. It's also true that time doesn't heal all wounds. Reconciliation is a process, just as all that has led up to betrayal is a process. People don't get to a betrayal-filled moment overnight, and people don't experience a reconciled relationship overnight. Forgiveness opens the door to the possibility for reconciliation to occur. So perhaps taking some of the misunderstandings surrounding forgiveness off of the table, it clears the path toward forgiveness for you. Sometimes we think, Sometimes we think, I'm the only one who's been betrayed. I'm, nobody could understand this. You know, not only are there others in this church who understand, Jesus himself understands. He was betrayed by one of the 12 he chose to disciple. 
the one in whom he invested his life turned around and gave him a kiss of betrayal. And eventually the other 11 left him too. Jesus cares about how you feel. He's been there. I'm going to step to the side just a second to, to give you an exhortation. I think, I think that's the right word. If you're thinking of making a decision that betrays a trust, think again before making a choice to do that. Your betrayal will damage other people, and it may destroy yourself. If you've been playing around with this, a betrayal of your child, a betrayal of people in this spiritual family, a betrayal of your husband or your wife, don't, don't do it. Decide today you're not going to go there. If you have a relationship you're building off to the side and you know it's wrong, decide right now it's over. You're not going to pursue it anymore. And find somebody spiritually mature soon and tell them about it and have them hold you accountable. If you've been betrayed, I want you to know there's incredible healing in the Gospels. People may come and go in our lives. Some may even leave scars that we feel long after they've left. Jesus will never leave you. He will never betray you. According to that truth, anchoring that truth is the best way to get out of your shell, to defeat the victim mindset, and to put to death the desires of revenge. So the challenge to you this morning is for you to overcome the bitterness of betrayal with forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that You've chosen in your word to pull the curtains back on some of the darkest moments uh, in history for us to read about. Uh, And this was certainly one of the darkest. To betray the Son of God with a kiss, as Judas chose to do, is um, it's beyond anything any of us could hear and here could think about doing. And we thank you for letting us see what happened. And especially to see Jesus' response. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As I'm praying over our church family this morning, Father, I I pray for those who are on the edge of betrayal. Uh, Betraying someone close to them. Betraying a a group of people, a team, a team. an office full of coworkers, a family, um, a son, a daughter. And I, I pray today that they will hear that the door's not closed. They can walk away from this decision they're about to make and say no. And I, I pray that that will happen today. And I pray for those who have been betrayed, Father. I, um, some in very deep powerful ways that have, that have cut us um, just deeply, God. I pray for those folks in here. I, I pray that forgiveness um, can become a real possibility for them just to, to be freed from the prison of resentment and revenge and vindication. Just use us as a church family to hold each other together and, and to... And to encourage one another as we live our weeks with um, with the temptation to to be self-centered and, and selfish. Um, thank you for our time and your word this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing. I'm forgiven.